Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a cloudy spring morning here in the capital is Bankim Chandra. Bankim is the CEO and Managing Director of Dot Squares, a well-established IT implementer and enabler based in the UK, US, Australia and India. Uh, Bankim, very warm welcome to you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Good morning, Scott. How are you? Doing really well, thank you, Bankim. It's uh, not been the nicest weather for it um, over the course of the last few weeks, and we're into the spring, but we haven't really seen much sign of it. And of course, it's not the first time that you joined us on the show either. Uh, you joined us um, around about a year ago in the early weeks of the lockdown, talking about sort of the initial impact of the COVID situation. Um, now, 14 months down the line, we're still in the grip of that global pandemic. So I think we should start by addressing the elephant in the room and just talk a little bit about how the pandemic at large has affected you and your business since the last time we spoke? Um, Scott, I have been in the business for almost two decades. And I would say the last one and a half, two years have been the most challenging one. Right? Almost on a daily, weekly basis, as a leader uh, of a company where we've got just over 800 people all over the world, one of the biggest challenges for me is to motivate people on a daily, weekly basis and depending on how each country is doing in the world because we all have been in different phases and cycles of this virus, you know. And how do you motivate others uh, when your own country, for example, where you are living is doing better in terms of virus than the other? And when you see your colleagues, their country is much more opened up they can go to the offices and you're in lockdown. So uh, uh, one of the most challenging things for me in my leadership role has been how the CEO should act and keep everyone balanced and sort of give them hope. Yes, it's a temporary period and we will pass through it. And uh, we have done various things. We have done yoga sessions. We have done fun sessions. We have done weekly huddles. And then as days were going so well, then we started doing virtual sessions with our clients, inviting them as well. And especially on a Friday afternoon, that yes, it has been a great week for all of us. Uh, we have done well and weekend is coming and we have to spend more time with our families mm. <laughs> as if we haven't done enough already during the week. Uh, so business-wise, I personally feel there's a big uh, market shift which has happened. Uh, in last two years, industries which were thriving uh, before pandemic, uh, like uh, travel technology, of course, impacted uh, big time. And many financial products which were doing before well, but now new fintech industry is being uh, reborn, uh, especially in London. I feel a new kind of investment is coming into the market. So, uh, and we have seen that shift within our client base as well. But Dot Squares, we've always believed uh, in working as per the requirements of the clients, changing 
ourselves as per the needs of the clients and trying to make their uh, project successful. One of our forte is working with startups, how to make the startup successful as a scale-up and take them to the next level of an enterprise organization. And using various tools which are available in the market, using various technologies like CRM system, you know, where their salespeople are working remotely. Uh, so trying to bring them on to the same platform using the same central database and then enabling their business to be more efficient. And same applies with ERP systems where logistically you have to be so efficient technology-wise uh, to again give that extra uh, strength and extra edge to your business than your competitor. And technology-wise, we have grown a lot in those fields, those areas uh, uh, to to take, take our company forward and take our client forward as well. Does that help, Scotland? It does, for sure. And um, I think you're very, very right in the sense that the role of technology in the workplace in the way that we do business is only going to be greater as a result of the pandemic. It's sort of accelerated that automation. And given what DotSquare is involved in, of course, IT solutions, web implementation, it's it's an exciting time for your business, isn't it? And there's going to be a lot of opportunities going forward. Yes, a lot of opportunities. And, and what we have done is where we have seen what technologies are going to be much more uh, used in future like cloud and AWS. Mm. So we have retrained our uh, staff members into those technologies, given them exposure uh, onto those technologies so that we can be ready when those kind of projects come in more. We've given uh, a lot of free uh, webinars uh, where the technology is moving, where the existing technologies can help your systems, which has again give us a, given us a good credibility within the market. Yes, so they are giving free information. They're giving consultancy. They're, uh, they're advising people how, for example, social media can help you, how SEO can help you, how PPC can help uh, taking the business forward. And, uh, of course, one of the industries which has grown a lot is delivery of food and products, e-commerce. So we have developed our own products around them, taken them to the next level, and you know, kept them as competitive as possible, so that a small uh, business owner, small takeaway, can use those kind of solutions like takeaway apps or e-commerce app- packages from us, and make them more uh, digitalized. And you know, previously, you know, a small shop owner wouldn't be able to afford having those kind of technical solutions, and that's where we are trying to do and make that difference. Uh, to those SMEs. And just reflecting on sort of the last 14 months as a whole, you've already talked about how you've had that challenge of motivating people from a distance, making sure people are on top of their mental health. And that's something that you relished and really sort of, you you carry that task out to the maximum and keeping everybody motivated, let's say. Um, So for the experience that you've had in the sense that you've risen to that challenge the business itself has an exciting future to look forward to because of the opportunities that are there in the marketplace do you think that even though covid has been a challenging and tragic time for a lot of people that you're coming out of this stronger both as a business leader and as a business at large definitely much much stronger Uh, all our staff members are much more closer to each other before 
even though yes there have been times where they haven't been able to meet each other but i think the team bonding and strength has gone up a lot you know people have been helping from different departments to each other i can see sharing of resources if required you know if if, if someone's project is getting hampered then the other teams will start helping them because of uh, if for some x y z reason that person can't work because of uh, any illnesses or anything like that so team bond team bonding uh, team building and strengthening uh, has been the key during the last 14 uh, months and yes we are much much more stronger uh, than before uh, and i am hoping now as the uk uh, is opening up more from 21st june trying to do uh, some uh, interactive uh, team building events because already started planning for end of june and for september maybe inviting some of our clients to our london office as well so we have started already thinking about those events uh, where we can what we have learned in last 14 months use it as a proper platform and take it to the next level and given just how your team have come together to rise to this challenge do you feel that you've learned anything new about your colleagues during this period of time as well yes yes definitely personally because uh, uh, you know with their colleagues you know you, you want to spend a few minutes talking about their families talking about their friends how they're doing just making sure everything is okay checking their uh, mental uh, happiness or mental health just making sure they're doing okay giving them advice yes please take regular breaks in between uh, and uh, so which has definitely <laughs> made you much closer to the colleagues you start remembering the names of their family members which is very much important and uh, any industry scott especially in service what matters more is that personal relationship right mm. when there's a problem in any project when there's an issue in a, any project as we know what really matters is personal relationship and how we can get it's simple give and take and that's what we always tell our clients you know we're not working like a customer supplier relationship we're working together as a team right there are going to be times when the project will go off the track but we will bring it on track right mm-hmm. and we'll try to complete it within the timelines or budget whatever we have set up right so you know as human beings we try that and i see the personal relationships which we have built it in last uh, one and a half years or so yes will definitely make our projects going much more uh, successful much much more successful than before fantastic and you talked about as well the importance of your staff members taking regular breaks as well when they need to now something that we've been talking an awful lot about at the leaders council recently is uh, ceo burnout and the impacts of stress on business leaders now it can be difficult even though you're encouraging everybody to sort of take regular breaks to when you're the leader step away when you need to and sort of recharge your own batteries and um, for you personally bankim do you find it easy to sort of take a step back and switch off when you need to for me it's called it's sports it's doing some training you know i'm not i'm not good at any sport but i like to play <laughs> whatever we are allowed to play so at the beginning of the lockdown 
I managed to get uh, a peloton, right? And then uh, I got it within first few days. I know as we entered into April, May, there was a long queue of three, four months to get a peloton. But uh, so that's what we were allowed at that time, indoor training and one walk a day outdoors. So I use that, but with better peloton, I I used to do two, three sessions a day at that time. And I managed to hit my century <laughs> of, <laughs> of spinning rides very quickly. And I think, and then I, 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 I'm too old to be on this program, Scott. But I, I, I thought I took help from my kids and I put a picture of mine on Instagram on Peloton. And for some reason, that got viral. Peloton contacted me. Can we use this picture? And then, uh, and so for me, going back to your original question, what, yes, we, for CEOs or for anyone in the leadership role or for anyone really, it has been a difficult time anyway. But yes, it's our responsibility to motivate others, to lead others and make sure there are various things which are going right within the organization or try to think that we are doing the right steps to make it right for everyone. So for me, training is very much important. And as the outdoor sports were allowed, so I, I, I'm a posh player originally, but then I got into tennis mm. because tennis was allowed. So playing tennis and then squash was allowed, so I started playing squash. So for me, the break is uh, sports and family time. You know, uh, you know, just spending time with the kids, not thinking about anything else, just having fun you know, watching a movie with them or playing an uh, indoor or outdoor sport with them. So I, 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 I'm lucky enough to have uh, three beautiful girls around me and along my wife as well. So four, four women, uh, which is sometimes very difficult, Scott. But <laughs> I, I, try, I try to find joy out of that. So, so sports and family is really my uh, time out where, uh, where, I feel then I can use that positive energy to bring it back into uh, work and uh, try to motivate uh, my colleagues and staff members. Exactly right. And we've talked so much on this program over the last few months about the importance of the work-life balance and you've epitomized just how important it is there. And you say as well that the role of leaders is to be there to motivate others, to inspire others. It is so, so important. And um, when we're the ones at the top of the tree as leaders, I suppose, and there's nobody else for us to look up to, um, when you are the leader, where is it that you tend to sort of draw your personal motivation and inspiration from? For me, it's my parents and my mentors, personally. So uh, my parents live in India. So I speak to them almost on a daily basis and just have a chat. You know, when I'm, you know, for example, these days when I'm driving into work, I talk to them for five minutes, you know. And sometimes whatever problem is going on in my head, Scott, I wouldn't ask them directly, but I would ask them indirectly, right? And uh, nine out of 10 times, you get an answer. And then professionally, you know, as for your career, whom you worked with, you know, I was lucky enough to work with American Express, Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, Santander Bank, uh, in, in my professional career. So, and I had made 
good relationships with lots of uh, senior leadership over there. And they're on my LinkedIn, they're on my WhatsApp. So keep, keep in close contact with them and uh, wherever you feel uh, you, know, you need to have a chat with them, then, then I try to get an answer from them. So for me, so in short, the answer is elders, you know, seniors, mentors, family members, you know, uh, that that's where I feel uh, they, they give me the right advice uh, without any, you know, any of their personal uh, <laughs> satisfaction or personal advantage to them. Mm. Does it make sense? It does, certainly. And um, for any of those younger viewers that might be tuning into this podcast, um, networking in that sense with senior figures within industry and other business leaders, it's one of the best things that you can do because we can learn from each other. We can talk. We're not all essentially robots that are just in competition with each other. We are all human. We aren't infallible. So sharing experiences, sharing ideas is so very important. And um, just before we do um, wrap things up on this morning show, Banking, because I'm conscious that we're starting to uh, run short of time, I just want to go back to something that we just sort of discussed at the very beginning, and that's the fact that, of course, you're working in so many different countries, but universally now we're starting to see a little bit of progress. Of course, we're a bit further ahead here in the UK, but the vaccination program is now underway in India as well, so hopefully there'll be some positive changes there. Already it is having a very positive impact on um likelihood of hospitalization reducing that very much into decimals so with the roadmap out of lockdown there now and there being a route forward perhaps are you optimistic about the next 12 months and ideally where do you want your business dot squares to be this time next year as we hopefully come out of this pandemic for good i personally feel yes Uh, scientifically uh, the solution which has been given to end this pandemic is vaccines Right, and as you rightly said, of course, UK is way more ahead. The UK, and US is way more ahead than the rest of the world. But at the same time, yes, the rest of the world is catching up. Um, and yes, I personally feel uh, vaccination in next twelve months all over the world should uh, bring us as close as possible to the pre-COVID times. So I personally feel yes, it is getting there. For example. Bigger companies, uh, bigger bigger countries like India, it will take a lot longer. But at the same time, not all the areas need to be vaccinated uh, initially because there are lots of villages, uh, provinces where people don't travel that much. So they are at their places. And whereas big cities, there's a lot more movement. Mm. So uh, I think those big cities should be targeted first. So... Uh, in India and you know for example our own organization uh, we know 25 to 30% of people in India they have already been vaccinated we are a very young company so but gradually they all uh, I feel will be uh, vaccinated in next few months or so Uh, at the moment India is in lockdown but we are hoping within next few weeks or so uh, lockdown measures will be eased up and they'll start coming into the offices as well over there. Yeah, so hopefully we do start to see some real progress um, in not just, of course, the UK economy, but the economy of the wider world as well. And we start to see businesses all over the globe uh, returning to uh, to some form of normality. 
Uh, Bankham, I have to say, it's been a real pleasure and a real eye-opening experience welcoming you onto the show. And given that, again, we can't quite be too sure what state sort of the global economy is going to look like in a year's time, I think it would be great, again, to catch up and have you back on the programme for a third occasion just to see what has changed since this discussion that we've had and see as well where the business is at as well and how you've been excelling over the next uh, few months. Sure, sure, Scott. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity and more than happy to help uh, for future. And uh, I am hoping that this conversation which we do over here, uh, youngsters, young people can learn something from that. And uh, you, you rightly summarized at some points during this conversation and where people can really learn uh, from our experience for so many years. Exactly right. Two aspiring business leaders out there. Um, it's not a time to despair at the state of the economy because there are so many opportunities out there. There are so many business executives you can go out, network with and learn from. So please do be looking out for those opportunities. Be ready to pounce on them. Um, and also, uh, Bankim, just before we do um, wrap things up now, um, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well, because although we're seeing the green shoots now, we're almost there. We're not quite out of the woods yet. So we've still got to be just that little bit cautious. Absolutely, Scott. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time and speak to you soon. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Bankim Chandra of Dot Squares back onto the show today. Um, next up on the programme, we'll be handing over to Sir Andrew Strauss, the ex-director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, who endured a fantastic playing career as well. Um, Sir Andrew actually during his playing days was one of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia and he also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history. Incredibly impressive record. Um, do hope you enjoy listening to the upcoming interview and that will be coming up now. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, 
I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player. I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it's it just an extraordinary thing and 
without doubt, the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, 
you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your Th- job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was what was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, 
And the second part of your question around what did the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that 
we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events here, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up again year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it w- w- what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. 
and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.